Well, wherever you may be joining us, whether that's on your back porch, your living room, your bedroom, or here with us in person, I want you to go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, As Alex mentioned, we will be concluding our series on Colossians this morning, so we're going to be taking a look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18, through Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Well, I was born in 1982, and let me help you with that math at home, I am 38, all right? So I'm not 40, but I'm knocking on the door. Which means I am a product of two decades, the 80s and the 90s. And those decades are known for for multiple things. One, their music. You think about great bands like Journey and Chicago. And then you had those, you had rap music was made popular. You think about those boy bands with the frosted tips. Uh, It's also known for their fashion. You think about denim and parachute pants and big hair. And they're also known for those iconic TV shows like Full House and Friends. But for me, as a teenager growing up in the 90s, I remember it for this. How many of you know what this is? Or maybe you had one growing up. It is a WWJD bracelet. The initials stand for, what would Jesus do? And I think the idea behind the bracelet was twofold. One, uh, it was a reminder. um, It served as a reminder to live a questionable life life. What do I mean by questionable life? Well, it's a life, an authentic Christian life that exposes the people around you to the gospel message and generates questions. Let me say that again. This bracelet served as a reminder to live a questionable life, an authentic Christian life, one that exposes the gospel message to the people around you, thus invoking questions. It's as Alex just shared with us, it's a mission-driven life. It's a life that looks so similar to the person of Jesus that people begin to ask questions. Questions like, you know, I've watched you over the last four to six months as you've dealt with that chronic health issue, and you have so much peace in your life. You're able to experience joy. How is that possible? You know, I watch you as you interact with your coworkers. Many of them are very dismissive. They shame you. They belittle you. But yet you still show kindness and compassion. How are you able to do that? And I couldn't help to think about this WWJD bracelet this week as I was preparing for this text. Because in Colossians chapter 4, Paul is charging the church at Colossae to live a questionable life. A life on mission. And Paul says, when you do so, there are five habits. We're going to take a look at two of them this morning. I'll share the rest at the end. But five habits of a highly missional life. So wherever you may be this morning, I'm going to ask you to take uh, your Bibles. And would you stand with me in honor of God's word as I read? We're going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also may have a master in heaven. Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, may we be a people on mission, devoted to prayer, and demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel message. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, before I jump into the text, let me kind of give you an overview over the last three or four weeks. As I mentioned, we've been in a sermon series uh, in the book of Colossians. Now, Colossians is a letter that Paul writes to the church at Colossae. Now, why is Paul writing this letter? Well, you see, Paul is concerned that the church at Colossae is being swayed or persuaded by false teaching. The church is in a culture of syncretism. What do we mean by syncretism? Well, syncretism is the fusion of different systems of belief. It's where a man or a woman would borrow a belief or practice from one religion, they would borrow a belief or practice from another religion, and then they would fuse them together and make it their own. And Paul is concerned because the church at Colossae is sinking itself so much with culture that there's nothing distinct about what they practice or what they believe. And as Aaron mentioned last week, This book is extremely relevant in 2020. Why? Well, because, you see, Nashville looks a lot like modern-day Colossae. And our church faces the same challenges. You see, we live in a culture of syncretism. And so in the first three chapters, Paul sets out to dismantle syncretism. And he starts in chapter 1 by providing evidence of who Jesus is. He says Jesus is supreme. He's divine, he's the firstborn of all creation, and in the midst of a pandemic in 2020, he holds all things together. Well, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul reminds the church at Colossae that salvation is only found through the person of Jesus Christ. You can't receive it, you can't obtain it by anything that you physically do. You don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to observe certain religious festivals or feasts, but rather it's made possible through Jesus' finished work on the cross. Then last week, Aaron shared with us that as a believer, you are to live a transformed life. And so Paul gives us a framework of how we should live. He says, put to death those things of the old self, sexual immorality, impurity, malice, slander, greed, anger, and instead put on. So you think about putting off and putting on, put on your new self, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those fruits of the Spirit. And in the latter part of chapter 3, Paul continues his framework of how we should live. Now, I don't want to spend much time on these two verses today because I want to spend a majority of our time in Colossians 4, but I do want to talk about them specifically. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, the context of this verse is a Christian household. It's a Christian woman and a Christian man. And there's mutual submission here. So follow me. The, the husband submits to the lordship of Christ. And as an overflow of that, he leads his wife with a servant heart. And she lovingly responds in submission. Men, don't hear me say that submission means you are superior to your wife. Men, don't hear me say that submission uh, means that you are to lord over and oppress your wife. And ladies... 
Don't hear me say that submission means that you are inferior because we know that you are created with equal value, equal worth, and in the image of God. What do we mean by submission? And last year when I preached on gender roles, I gave you this definition. And I think it's, again, it's the best definition I could find. It's by a lady by the name of Jen Wilkin who serves at the Village Church. Here's what she says. Submission is the defined calling of a wife to affirm and support her husband's leadership in the home and help him accomplish that role according to her gifts. You see, marriage is a covenantal relationship. You are partners. It's complementary, and you complement each other with your gifts and your skills and talents, and then you help the man in the home be the head of the home. Look at verse 22. Bond servants, some of your translations may say, slaves, obey your masters. Now, do not hear me say that Paul is a proponent of slavery. That's not how we should interpret this text. As a matter of fact, when you look at the rest of Paul's writings in the New Testament, you'll see that he is very much in favor of the liberation of slaves. Paul, just like you and I, views everyone regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic status, as created in the Imago Dei, and is someone who is has equal value and worth in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I said, I don't want to spend too much time there getting hung up on the verses, but I do want to spend the rest of our time in chapter 4. So flip over to to chapter 4, and let me read verse 2 again. Continue steadfastly, or devote yourselves in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the first habit of a highly missional person, or the first habit of a questionable life, is being devoted in prayer. What does Paul mean by that, that term devoted? Well, it, in Greek, it implies unrelenting persistence or perseverance. It means to adhere firmly. So being devoted to something means that you leverage all your time and your energy around that one goal. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look what he says. Not only be devoted in prayer, but what? Be watchful in prayer. What does the term watchful mean? Well, in Greek, it literally means to stay alert and be vigilant. So yes, Paul wants us to guard against physically falling asleep when we pray, much like the, the disciples in the garden. But more importantly, he says this. He says, mentally stay alert and be vigilant and guard against the distractions of this world that would keep us from prayer. Now let me give you an illustration of what Paul is talking about here. What it looks like to be devoted and watchful. Recently, uh, I just finished the Last Dance documentary in ESPN. It's a 10-part series that follows the career of Michael Jordan, specifically his last year with the 1998 Chicago Bulls. And in 1990, Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls get put out of the Eastern Conference Finals by the Detroit Pistons. And it was there that the documentary points out that Michael began to devote himself to one thing, winning championships. That offseason, he hired a personal trainer, a nutritionist, a dietitian, and he went into the gym, began to transform his body, become bigger, stronger, faster. He began, to strict, uh, uh, he began to follow a strict diet so that his body would not break down over the course of an 80-game season. And he also became a student of the game. You see, he knew that he was not always going to be the most athletic on the basketball court, so he begins to study other teams their offensive and defensive strategy. He began to invite NBA players into uh, practice and so that he could learn their weaknesses. 
And then he went into the gym and he says that he would shoot two to three hundred shots a day where he could patent and perfect that fadeaway jumper. Because he knew at some point age was going to win and he needed something to add to his arsenal. You see, Michael leveraged all of his time, energy, and effort around that one goal of winning championships. And in 1991, and just a year later, the Chicago Bulls won their first world championship. Now, in my opinion, this is, you can argue with me, but in my opinion, he's the greatest of all time. He goes on to win six championships, multiple MVPs, Defensive Player of the Year, and the list of his accolades go on and on and on. But you know what made Michael Jordan great? You know what made him great? It wasn't his athletic ability. It was his drive, determination, and focus. And I love this definition of focus. Here's what he says in the documentary. He says, focus, listen to this. Focus is not saying yes to your goal, but rather it's saying no to the hundreds of other things that would distract you from accomplishing your goal. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage. He says, you and I need to leverage our time, our energy, and effort around the one goal of developing a lifestyle of prayer. And we should say no to the hundreds of other things that would distract us to keep us or rob and compete us from our time with Jesus. And the great reformer Martin Luther says it this way. He says, prayer is the labor above all labors. So Martin Luther understood that prayer is not going to come naturally for us. We're going to have to discipline ourselves. We're going to be determined and focused. And so here's my encouragement to you this week. Next seven days before we, get, we come and we're gathered together again, I want you to carve out time every single day to pray. I want you to carve out a time every single day and pray. You see, most studies show that it takes about 90 days to develop a habit. So here's my encouragement to you. Set a reminder in your phone. If you're old school and you like a calendar or you have a planner in front of you, schedule out a time throughout your day to pray. Now, some of you think, well, Matthew, that sounds silly, right? Like, if I love Jesus, I should be just devoted to prayer? Yes. But again, for some of us, this may be new. It's not going to be a part of our natural rhythm. So I would tell you to go ahead and be intentional to guard against those distractions by scheduling, making it a part of your day. In the same way, I think about my wife and I, like, we love hanging out, we love going on dates, but if we don't put a date night on the calendar three, four, five weeks in advance, it will never happen. Why? Because we live in a world full of distractions. I think about our kids, probably the number one distraction from us, but you got technology, you got your career, you got your relationships, you got sports, all of those things are competing for our time with Jesus Christ. And if you're not careful, they will win every time. This week, I want to challenge you to carve out time each and every day to spend with Jesus. It can be five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Look back at the text. If verse 2 tells us how we should pray, we should be devoted in prayer, we should be watchful in prayer, verse 3 tells us what we should pray for. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Pray for gospel opportunities. Pray for opportunities where you live, work, and play to share the gospel message. Now, one of our key objectives as a church the rest of this year and into next year is this. It's to equip and deploy an increasing number of people for gospel conversations. So we not only want to highlight and celebrate gospel conversations once a month from the platform, but we want you to be talking about them in your groups. 
We want you to be talking about them on Serving Saturdays and on mission journeys. And so, again, a little homework for you. I want you to identify one person this week, just one person, where you live, work, and play, and begin to pray for them. Pray not only for their salvation, uh, that God would meet them where they are, that he would reveal himself to them, but pray that God would open a door for you to share the gospel. You know, one of the conversations Aaron and I have quite frequently is that uh, we love serving this congregation, but we really feel that our congregation doesn't have a why problem, it has a how-to problem. You guys understand the value of sharing the gospel. It's a life-changing message. You just don't know how to do it. So let us help you with that. Over the course of this year and next year, we're going to be providing gospel conversation training. And Aaron, I think this is right. Right before the pandemic, we had about 40 or 50 people go through that training. So here's what I would tell you. Just start there. Just start and attend one of our trainings because what you'll find is we'll give you a tool to put in your tool belt that gives you the confidence, helps you feel comfortable in sharing the gospel. But it starts with prayer. So discipline yourself this week to be praying for someone where you live, work, and play that the Holy Spirit would open an opportunity to share the gospel. So the first habit or characteristic of a mission-driven life or what I call a questionable life is being devoted in prayer, specifically praying for gospel opportunities. Look there again in verse 3, 4, and 5. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here's what Paul is saying. The second habit or characteristic of a mission-driven life is evangelism. It's evangelism. And he suggests a two-pronged approach. He said evangelism, not just proclaiming the gospel message, which is the declaring or the announcing with your mouth, but it's the demonstration of the gospel message. You see, for Paul, Paul had a very specific calling on his life. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was set apart for a very specific purpose, to take the gospel message into the Gentile people. He was a missionary. Now, for some of us watching today, God's not going to call us to be missionaries overseas. They're not going to call us to be an Aaron Bryan who is preaching and teaching. They're not going to call us to plant churches. But that doesn't relieve you from the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel message with your mouth. That's why we want to encourage you to be having these conversations every day where you live, work, and play. But just as important is demonstrating the gospel message. Go back to my earlier illustration of the WWJD bracelet. Paul says you are to live a questionable, a missional life. One that looks so similar to the person of Jesus that exposes the people around you to the gospel message, thus generating questions. You see, Paul understood that that our purpose, the reason we exist, the reason that God created us, is to reflect the image of God to others. We are to be image bearers. And I would tell you this, church, that oftentimes the most powerful testimony and witness to the gospel is the way that you live your life. Your life should emphasize the gospel message. Paul says you should watch how you walk, how you behave, how you respond. And notice what he says here. Verse 5. 
Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Paul mentions the words that come out of your mouth. Now, I don't know who came up with, with that saying, sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me, but that's a lie. Because Paul understands, Jesus understands, the disciple James understands how damaging your tongue can be. And I love his metaphor here because he, he talks about salt. Now, my son and I, we love salt. We'll walk into a Mexican restaurant, and there's a, a, a basket of salty chips in there. You know what my son does? He takes the salt shaker and pours more salt on it before he dips it into the salsa. I love salt on everything. I love it on my tomatoes uh, and watermelon. You know why we like salt? Because it makes things taste better. Right? It makes things taste better. It not only preserves, but it enhances flavor. And hear me say this. Your speech should preserve and enhance the gospel message. Your speech should preserve and enhance the gospel message, not deter or push away people from the gospel. And church, I just want to say this this morning. Over the last three months, I've seen on social media, I've been in conversations, I've seen group text where brothers and sisters in Christ are shaming one another. They're criticizing one another. They're being demeaning to their brothers and sisters in Christ, all because they share a difference of opinion of what is going on in the world around us. This passage is a great reminder that we need to be careful what comes out of our mouth. Because right now, culture is looking at the church. It's looking at us to see how we're going to respond when we're being squeezed, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and we're in an election year. Church, make sure your speech is enhancing and preserving the gospel message, not tearing down and deterring, detracting from the gospel message. As my student minister used to say, he said, Matthew, make sure your Talk matches your walk. Make sure your actions match your passions. Oftentimes, as I said, the only testimony a witness to the gospel message a person may have is how you live your life. So what are the implications? We've talked about some of them for the Church at Avenue South. I mentioned that our key objective is to uh, equip and deploy an increasing number of people for gospel conversations. But as Aaron said earlier, we want to be a sending church. We do. We want to send men and women out to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel message local, nationally, and globally. And last year, listen to this, last year we, had, we sent out over 360 people locally to serve through our Serving Saturday efforts, through a partnership with Carter Lawrence, and uh, through other serving at other local partners. And we had over 50 people Go on global missions last year. That's incredible, church family. We can celebrate that. And this year, before the pandemic, in January alone, we had over 60 people serving locally, both at Carter Lawrence and our Serving Saturday. And listen to this. I love this. Aaron mentioned me grieving for mission journeys. Here's one of the reasons I'm grieving. We had over 70 people signed up to go and demonstrate and proclaim the gospel all around the world. We want to be a sending church. We want to be a missional church. We want to raise up men and women in this congregation to live questionable lives. 
And as I mentioned to you, um, Paul gives us two habits here of what a uh, highly missional person looks like. And I want to put this up on the screen. Several years ago, I read a book, and this is what I'm closing with this morning. It was called Five Habits of Missional Living. And this author, Michael Frost, suggests there's really more than two. There's five. And I just want to run through these really quickly. He says a habit, someone who looks and is driven missionally, they're defined by generosity. They are generous with their time, their talents, and their treasures. And he mentions to bless one person each week. Now, I know in the midst of a pandemic, it may be hard because we're social distancing, we're in quarantine, but he says, write your neighbors a note of encouragement. Offer uh, to mow their grass. Take them a meal. Find a way to bless the people around you because a habit of a highly missional person is generosity. Number two, hospitality. A missional person is hospitable. He says, invite someone into your home and eat. Again, I know this is a little difficult in the midst of a pandemic, but here's what I would tell you. Offer to go eat lunch with someone, to buy someone dinner. Here's why. You think about Jesus' ministry in the New Testament. Majority of it's been around the table. And there's something powerful about breaking bread with someone because the walls come down and they begin to share what's going on in their life. You get to know their story. So, generosity, hospitality, the next two, listen and learn. This is your spiritual disciplines here. This is abiding in Jesus. So listen is being devoted in prayer. You're devoted in prayer so much that you're able to be led by the Spirit when the Spirit calls or asks you to do something. Learn, you're spending time every week reading Scripture. You're learning about who Jesus was, his actions, his personalities, his deeds, so then you can go and live and be Christ-like. And then finally is evangelism. It's sent. See yourself as a sent missionary where you live work, and play. Here's my question to you. Do you live a life on mission? Do you live a questionable life where you're devoted in prayer, you're participating in evangelism, either through demonstrating or proclaiming the gospel message, and where your speech is gracious and seasoned with salt? Let's pray.